0: All the bleeding and fighting, I've been reading and writing. We need to handle our financial situation. Are a nation of states? What's the state of our nation? A pass patiently waiting. I'm Welcome to my podcast, my dad podcast. This is the 1787 Project, the podcast version of the lectures for my socially distanced class on the US Constitution at the University of Missouri. I'm your professor and host, Justin Dyer. Welcome back, everybody. We're coming off a very strange homecoming weekend. We had no house decks, no parade, no football game, and such is life right now. We're now midway through the semester. We began with the Constitution, its origins and its purpose. We looked at the debates surrounding its ratification and then turned to the case for the Constitution made in the Federalist Papers, and they were responding to fears that people had about what kind of government and what kind of society this new Constitution would create. From there, we took Alexander Hamilton's argument in Federalist Number 78 that the judiciary is the least dangerous branch of government as a starting point to consider the development of the Supreme Court as an institution how it goes about its work, how it decides cases, and the authority it claims for itself as the authoritative interpreter of the Constitution. We then spent some time thinking about judicial power in the context of the separation of powers under the Constitution, moved into a discussion of the unique powers claimed by the president under the Constitution, and particularly in foreign affairs. And now we're diving into the issue of federalism, the division of authority between the state and national governments under the Constitution. After this section, we'll then look at legislative power, those enumerated powers of Congress primarily listed in Article I, Section 8 of the Constitution, and then we'll conclude our class with an examination of the ways we have collectively turned to the Supreme Court to police the political process in the United States with cases on such things as the Voting Rights Act, gerrymandering, campaign finance, and the counting or recounting of election ballots. But first, today, we're talking about federalism, this division of state and national power, starting with the landmark case of McCulloch versus Maryland in 1819. The question, as the lyrics from the song in the Hamilton musical put it, is, are we a nation of states? What's the state of our nation? What kind of government did the Constitution create? In 1787, the United States was governed by a document called the Articles of Confederation. Under that document, the national government was a national legislature, with each state represented equally. There was no executive or judicial branch of the national government. When the national government acted, it acted with the consent of and through the institutions of the state governments. How much did that situation change with the Constitution of 1787? What powers were left with the states? And what powers were now given to this new national government that now had a national executive branch and a national judiciary? To what extent could the national government act without the consent of, and not through the institution of the states, but directly on the people? To what extent did the states give up their own sovereignty? And who ultimately created the Constitution? Was it a compact entered into by the authority of the people in the various states as states? Or was it a governing document ratified by the people of the United States, speaking with one voice? These are the theoretical background questions of federalism. In federalism, this division of state and national power continues to have major implications for most of the big issues in American politics. Gun policy, immigration, abortion, especially if the Supreme Court overturns Roe v. Wade in the coming years, drug policy, medical or recreational marijuana, Medicaid expansion, the state exchanges in the Affordable Care Act, public health policy, the shutdowns and mask mandates in response to the current pandemic. All of these debates and policies take the peculiar shape they do in American politics, at least partly because of American federalism, because of choices that were made in 1787. McCulloch versus Maryland is the classic federalism case, sets the terms of debate in many ways for the rest of the constitutional controversies about federalism that we have. You may have heard this phrase before, the power to tax is the power to destroy. It comes from Chief Justice John Marshall's opinion in McCulloch, and it comes at the end of one of Marshall's long exercises in civic education for the new nation. The case begins when a cashier at a Baltimore branch of the Second National Bank, which was a bank incorporated by Congress, refuses to pay a state tax that was levied against all banks not chartered by the state legislature. Maryland's law was designed to disadvantage out-of-state banks, and in this case, the National Bank that was trying to operate in Baltimore. There are two big constitutional questions here. First, does Congress have the authority to charter a national bank and operate a branch in Baltimore in the first place? And second, if it does, then can the state of Maryland impose a tax on this branch of the national bank operating within its state borders? Answering those questions forces us to confront some fundamental issues about the Constitution, how we understand the powers of Congress, the powers retained by the states, and the relationship between the states and the federal government. And like I did with Justice George Sutherland's opinion in United States versus Curtis Wright Corporation back in episode 15, I'll quote at length here from Justice Marshall's McCulloch opinion. It's important for understanding constitutional fundamentals as the new constitutional order developed in the early republic and how people thought about and talked about these issues. Here are some questions implicated by the case and Marshall's answers to those questions. Was the Constitution the creation of the people of the United States as a whole, or the creation of the sovereign and independent states as states? Does the document represent a league or alliance among sovereign states, similar to a treaty maybe, or the Articles of Confederation, authorized by the states themselves? Or does the Constitution find its authority from the people of the nation as a whole, as one united people? In McCulloch, Marshall argues for the latter, says that the Constitution was submitted to state-ratifying conventions that were separate and distinct from the state legislatures. Those conventions represented the people of those states, but not the states as such. As Marshall writes, "...it is true they assembled in their several states, and where else should they have assembled? No political dreamer was ever wild enough to think of breaking down the lines which separate the states, and of compounding the American people into one common mass." Of consequence, when they act, they act in their states. But the measures they adopt do not, on that account, cease to be the measures of the people themselves. The government of the United States, Marshall says, proceeds directly from the people, the people of the whole nation. What kind of government did the people create and ratify? Marshall answers that it was one of enumerated powers. As he writes... This government is acknowledged by all to be one of enumerated powers. The principle that it can exercise only the powers granted to it would seem too apparent. That principle, he says, is universally admitted. And when the national government has a power to act under the Constitution, Marshall then goes on to say it is supreme within its sphere of action. But admitting that the government may only exercise those powers enumerated in the Constitution and that it has supremacy within those areas in which it has legitimate power— we still have to ask what powers have been enumerated in the Constitution. What powers does the federal government have? And that takes us to the question of the National Bank. And here's Marshall's argument. He says, quote, Among the enumerated powers, we do not find that of establishing a bank or creating a corporation. But there's no phrase in the instrument which, like the Articles of Confederation, excludes incidental or implied powers, and which requires that everything granted shall be expressly and minutely described. Even the Tenth Amendment, which was framed for the purpose of quieting the excessive jealousies which had been excited, omits the word expressly and declares only that the powers not delegated to the United States nor prohibited by it to the states are reserved to the states or to the people. Thus leaving the question, Marshall says, whether the particular power which may become the subject of contest has been delegated to the one government or prohibited to the other to depend on a fair construction of the whole instrument. How do we give a fair construction to the instrument? It depends, partly on what kind of thing it is. Marshall argues that constitutions are designed to mark the great outlines of power and to leave specific questions to be deduced from the constitution's nature or purpose and its design or structure. In one of his famous lines from the case, he says, We must never forget that it is a constitution we are expounding. We can't forget the kind of document we're called upon to interpret here, Marshall suggests. And so he puts together an argument that one of the implied powers of the government, although not specifically enumerated, is a power to incorporate and operate a national bank. Although among the enumerated powers of government, Marshall writes, we do not find the word bank or incorporation, we find the great powers to lay and collect taxes, to borrow money, to regulate commerce, to declare and conduct a war, and to raise and support armies and navies. It may with great reason be contended that a government entrusted with such ample powers on the due execution of which the happiness and prosperity of the nation so vitally depends must always be entrusted with ample means to their execution. If the National Congress thinks the best way to accomplish those great objects of national power is to incorporate a bank, then we could fairly say it's one of the powers of government by implication— Article 1, Section 8 seems to acknowledge this by giving Congress the power to do whatever is necessary and proper to carry out its enumerated powers. The creation and operation of a bank is, for Marshall, one of those implied powers of the national government, something fairly judged to be necessary and proper for carrying out the enumerated powers of the national government, what Marshall calls the great substantive and independent powers, enumerated in Article 1, Section 8. So far, so good, but we have a second question. Granting that the national government can operate a bank, may the state of Maryland, as an exercise of its own sovereignty, nonetheless tax that bank when it operates within the state's borders? According to Marshall, no. Why not? Well, because the Constitution and the laws of the United States are supreme over state laws, according to Article 6. And so the national government is supreme in its sphere of its legitimate authority. If the national government has a power to act, then it's supreme in that area. If the Constitution gives Congress the power, at least by implication, to charter and operate a national bank, then it also makes the operations of that bank supreme. And as Marshall says, quote, It's the very essence of supremacy to remove all obstacles to its action within its own sphere, and so to modify every power vested in subordinate governments, as to exempt its own operations from their influence. What does that mean for taxation? States obviously can levy taxes— We pay state sales taxes, income taxes, licensing fees, and all sorts of other state-imposed taxes all the time. But the state doesn't have the authority to tax citizens of other states, Marshall points out. The state's sovereignty extends only to things that exist by the state's own authority. The state of Missouri couldn't impose a tax on businesses chartered in Illinois or on income produced in Kansas, for example. Citizens in those states haven't consented to those taxes, and the state of Missouri has no authority within the boundaries of neighboring states. And in the same way, Marshall says, the National Bank exists outside of the sovereign authority of the states. It depends for its existence on the consent of the people of the nation as a whole. Which is why it was so important for Marshall to establish at the beginning of his opinion that the Constitution was an act by and an agreement among the people of the nation acting through their states rather than an act of the states as such. Finally, then, at the end of his opinion, Marshall utters the phrase that inspired the title of this episode, The Power to Tax, he wrote, involves the power to destroy, that the power to destroy may defeat and render useless the power to create, and that there is a plain repugnance in conferring on one government the power to control the constitutional measures of another, which other, with respect to those measures, is declared to be supreme over that which exerts the control, are propositions not to be denied. And then with that reasoning behind him, Marshall announced his conclusion on behalf of the Supreme Court, We are unanimously of opinion, he said, that the law passed by the legislature of Maryland imposing a tax on the Bank of the United States is unconstitutional and void. The National Bank survived Marshall's opinion. The Maryland tax on that bank did not, and the constitutional debate continued. When Congress voted to reauthorize the National Bank in 1832, President Andrew Jackson not convinced yet of Marshall's reasoning in McCulloch, vetoed the bill, and maintained in his veto a line we previously discussed when we talked about judicial supremacy, and in this case it was Jackson's denial of judicial supremacy. It's maintained by the advocates of the bank that its constitutionality and all its features ought to be considered as settled by precedent and by the decisions of the Supreme Court, Jackson said in the veto message. But to this conclusion I cannot assent. Mere precedent is a dangerous source of authority and should not be regarded as deciding questions of constitutional power, except where the acquiescence of the people and the states can be considered as well-settled. That veto message, authored in large part by Jackson's Treasury Secretary, Roger Taney, offered a different constitutional understanding and suggested that the people and the states must consider a constitutional issue to be well-settled before it is finally well-settled. After John Marshall's death in 1835, Jackson then nominated Taney to take Marshall's place as Chief Justice of the United States. It was an office that he held until his own death in 1864. Just before Taney's death, in the middle of the Civil War, Congress passed a National Banking Act, creating a system of federal government banks that were a successor to the first national banks we had and a precursor to the Federal Reserve Bank system we have today. Despite its detractors, that system seems to be quite well settled at this point, but many questions of federalism are not well settled, and this owes in no small part to the federalism revolution of the 1990s, and so we'll pick up that topic and those cases in the next episode.